Welcome to the Journal of the Southwest Radio Hour, produced by the University of Arizona Southwest Center in the College of Social and Behavioral Sciences. I'm Jeff Bannister. Today I'm talking with Dr. Natalia Mendoza-Rockwell, a professor of anthropology at Fordham University who researches the effects of drug and human smuggling on communities in the U.S.-Mexico borderlands. Natalia spent a significant part of her childhood growing up in the Sonoran town of Altar, an important waypoint for migrants hoping to make it across the international border into southern Arizona. She has degrees from El Colegio de México and Columbia University, and her interests range from linguistic anthropology and political theory to post-colonial intellectual histories of Latin America, Africa, and the Caribbean. Natalia is only one of a handful of scholars who approach the politics and social geographies of smuggling from an ethnographic perspective. She is also a writer of vibrant prose and recently won Mexico's prestigious Jose Revuelta's Literary Prize from the Instituto Nacional de Bellas Artes y Literatura for her collection of essays, El Extravío de los Signos, Tres Ensayos sobre Duelo y Porvenir. This conversation was recorded via the internet during the time of the COVID-19 pandemic, and the background noise was unfortunately difficult to reduce. Natalia Mendoza, welcome to the JSW Radio Hour. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I have so many questions for you, and I'm, I'm so grateful to uh, have you on our, our show uh, this afternoon. Uh, one of the first things I wanted to talk about, though, is so you, um, you have your undergraduate degree from the Colegio de México, and you've got a, a master's and PhD from Columbia University. That's um, right. And you're an anthropologist, uh, right? And you, uh, you work on a variety of different things. What I'm really interested in, though, is so you're, you're born and raised in Mexico, and your research, writing, and activism seem to kind of express a, a profound concern to understand and respond to some of the kind of the most heart-wrenching and intractable problems uh, facing our species, <laughs> uh, organized <laughs> crime, the drug wars, human trafficking, kidnapping and disappearance, you know, the list seems, seems to go on. And I, and I just would like to know, so how were you drawn into this kind of work? Uh, what, what led you into all of this? Well, I think everything started because um, my father's family is from Altar, and um, and I used to go there all the time when I was a kid. And then I I actually lived there with my grandmother when I was in uh, junior high, and um, and this was in the late nineties. And it was when Altar began to you know it was just starting to become one you know main crossing point for for migrants coming from Southern Mexico and Central America. And so I kind of slowly, you know, got to see in real time, so to speak, like all the kind of transformations that were happening um, year after year. Um, I kept going back to Altar um, almost every year after that. And then when I finished my undergrad in, in, in Mexico City, I, I, I decided to, to do an ethnographic research project and, um, and I, I went to Altar and I did my Servicio Social at the, at the municipio. You know, I don't know how you call that, but the kind of... Um, the county seat or the municipal County seat or the county office, yeah. And, um, and I was there for another whole year, more sort of directly doing research and interviewing different people. And, and, um, and that's what led to Conversaciones en el Desierto. This was 2004. 2005 mm -hmm. so it was right before you know the kind of the huge spike in violence took place in mexico which started in 2007 mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, with the President uh, Calderon. Yeah, with President de Calderon's uh, decision to mobilize the army, you know, in the so-called war on drugs. So um, I was able to see these different kind of moments in the history of the region of Altar and Caborca. And so I've seen it, you know, and now we have a completely different situation also. So I have kind of this more or less long-term perspective on, you know, 20 years of um, changes in, in the region. Um, and a lot of that has to do with uh, migration and extortion and the rise of the sicarios. And the, so what began as a more uh, sort of like amateur drug traffickers, you know, when I was a kid, I grew up uh, hearing these stories about, um, you know, drug traffickers. And these were more like the drug traffickers in those stories were kind of tricksters. You know, they were like, you know, like they had all these different sort of resources to hide and to mimic and to kind of smuggle. It was this, it wasn't really violent. It wasn't, it wasn't something that we related to, to violence as much as to kind of ingenuity. And this, of course, is what changed. And, and, and now we have this kind of professional militia that controls every movement uh, and all the circulation of people and, and commodities through the region. So this is what happened during these 20 years. Um, and I've been basically just following those transformations. Well, I was going to ask you too. So could you could you kind of walk us through that a little bit? So we have this transformation, this kind of arc of change over the 20 years that you've you've known this place. Can you kind of walk us through your observations and I mean, what was it like in the 90s, for instance, when you, when you arrived there? What do you remember? So I remember a lot of stories about um, local, I think, local drug traffickers, local smugglers. I mean, this was, I mean, the term narco wasn't even used that much. It was kind of mañoso, maña, I mean, these different terms. And it was, you know, it was these stories that produced a certain admiration, you know, like it was this sort of like the dream of social mobility is what it was. I mean, you, we could see, like I had classmates in junior high who decided to go into the smuggling business and, and made it, made it for a little bit, you know, like, so we could see this, like, uh, this sort of like examples of like people who, you know, would go from like racks to riches type of thing, right? Like, you know, like it really implied a kind of huge social mobility for um, a kind of landless uh, social class. Um, it was, you know, the, I think at the time, one of the huge sort of uh, distinctions that people would make would be between the local smugglers and and smugglers who were coming from other places in Mexico, from the specifically from Sinaloa. So it was like people accepted and admired and, you know, could sort of like establish social relationships or relationships of kinship with local ones. But there was this kind of sort of big fear and and sort of, uh, you know, fear and mistrust of those who were coming from from Sinaloa and from Durango and from other places. And, you know, this is one of the kind of the things that I noticed in, in my book at the time. And then, of course, what happened was that um, Altar became, you know, because of um, changes in, in, in U.S. Uh, border enforcement, and, you know, Altar became um, a major crossing point for migrants, you know, because of this sort of like funnel effect of um, pushing um, migrants towards the, you know, more, more hostile areas of the desert. And so Altar, who was, it's not an urban uh, center, it's, it's, it's kind of a rural 
community uh, became a major crossing point. And uh, and I remember those years too. I mean, it was like you know, my grandmother couldn't believe what she was seeing. It was it was like you know, thousands and thousands of people, and um, and the entire economy of the place you know was transformed, and like all these you know, many people got very rich also very quickly with the hotels and the restaurants and you know all these services to migrants. And, um, and there was this kind of boom that this was like maybe early 2000s up until 2010, 12. And then um, in 2010 is when I first heard the word Sicario and Cobra Quota. This was kind of like a, a, a novelty in, in, in town. And it was um, a new structure that was um, basically trying to attempt um a monopoly of all the, you know, um, illegal activities in, in, in the town and, and in particular, um, you know, charging fees to, to undocumented migrants. So this is aside from the fee that the, that the pollero or that the smuggler charges, this is a fee that uh, people have to pay, you know, up to now, migrants need to pay this fee in order to go through altar. So this is a fee that it's paid to the to the mafia, and that it's not a small amount of money. I mean, it's 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 you know this is one of the things that uh, different groups are fighting over right now. It's kind of the the right to to charge those fees. So it's a kind of a, a right to traverse the space in a way, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, actually, uh, it has gone even further than that because um, right now, I mean, in the kind of I don't write uh, about this in my book, but I, you know, in research that I have done more recently, is the entire border line, the entire U.S.-Mexico border, and in particular that section between, uh, let's say, Nogales and Sonoida, is divided and it's owned. The, the border itself is owned by different groups. I mean, like they can draw you a map of like from this kilometer to this kilometer, it belongs to the Altar Mafia, which is also known as Los Cazadores or Noveno. If you go from there to there, um, it belongs to Caborca. If you go uh, further west, then it belongs to Sonorita. And so it's, it's almost like a form of property of the border. And of course, you know, um, the border becomes a sort of resource, an economic resource to be exploited by these groups, you know, through um, by charging uh, fees to not only migrants, but also other drug traffickers. So right now, for instance, if a, if a drug trafficker wants to use Altar, the border that belongs to Altar, he has to pay uh, $10,000 a week to, to operate there. So... Is like the territory itself has become um, a commodity. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yeah, you write in your book, uh, The Conversaciones en el Desierto, you know, the, the popular portrayals of organized crime and the drug wars in Mexico are so often focused on cartels as kind of impermeable, in some ways, organizations that operate on the margins of or outside of society. And, and I know that there's room for a lot of nuance, even in popular portrayals around that. Mm-hmm. But I think that that, you know, I, I can see a lot of that in, in the way that people tend to talk about what's happening in Mexico. And uh, but but in the book, you describe a much more nuanced reality. Um, and a lot of that is based on your, you know, of course, your ethnographic work and your own experience. 
But one thing I really appreciate on top of all of that is the the way that you understand space as kind of an actor in all of in all of this. You know that um, there's a sort of a transformation of of both physical and in in, in a lot of ways kind of uh, you know mental space that happens uh, in this whole process. So you know Altar is at one point a kind of a sleepy cow town in some ways. Um, that not, the the railroad doesn't even go through <laughs> because mm-hmm. it's so far out of the way. I guess the railroad um, that was you know that was run across the Sonoran Desert in the 1940s, and then the highway comes through in the 1950s, um, and it's made to go through Altar because these you know people realize that the that the town is kind of getting forgotten in some ways. You know, so all the, there's this long history of changes that you document. Mm-hmm. Then all of those have, you know, real spatial geographic implications. Could you, can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, take us through that a little bit? Yeah, well, I have a lot of things to say about that. But um, so one interesting thing that I've been thinking about more recently is there's this very clear distinction uh, in Mexico, in the region, between paved and unpaved roads. So um, it's almost like the, so for instance, so the term brecha, brecha is a term that is used locally in Sonora to refer to dirt roads. Mm-hmm. And, and from Altar to the border, what you have is a dirt road, it's la brecha, it's like a master brecha, it's like a, you know, it's a, it's a dirt road that has remained unpaved and it links Altar to Sasabe. Mm-hmm. And and the, the whole identity of the, of the local Altar Mafia is based around the control of brechas. It's like their power is in the brechas, in the dirt roads, mm-hmm. and, and, and the state power is in the paved roads. So there is a very clear kind of like, it's almost like an agreement. So there is this very clear kind of division of governance, so to speak, in which like the Mexican government, you know, through their army and the police, sort of controls, you know, these kind of major infrastructures like paved roads and, and, and towns. But then as soon as you leave those, there is this kind of like really complex sort of, uh, you know, system of dirt roads connecting one place to another place. And that's an entirely different world. I mean, it really is. And, and so you have songs, you have corridos. For instance, the, the, the leader of the mafia now in Altar has a song that it's called El Señor de las Brechas, which is like, you know, the Lord of the Dirt Roads or something like that. So it's really like a kind of like central aspect of their of their identity, like this, you know, this is their, this is their realm, their world is, is, is the dirt roads, like the backstage, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then you have like, well, you know, in terms of a spatial, uh, you know, sort of phenomena, you have this whole thing that I just described about like the division of like the, the segmentation of the border into sort of like pieces to be owned or segments to be owned by different groups and be exploited. You also have, on top of all that, it's, you know, the, the, the landed aristocracy in, in Sonora. And something that I think is really important and really interesting to know is, is that you have this new class of, let's say, criminals or, you know, this militia, these, I don't even know what to call them now, because, you know, it's really like a militia, you know, that controls the territory. You have the rights of this new class. Most of them are young, very young uh, men. And most of them are, I mean, all of them come from the lower uh, social strata. Like, you know, they were, um, they started like the, uh, the current leader, it's like he started as a driver of the vans that were uh, taking migrants from Altar to, 
to to South Africa back in the early 2000s. I mean, they were drivers and, and um, you know, they were like sort of a working class. And now they are, you know, they, they have risen and they have become like really powerful and really wealthy and they have branches and, you know, like they have an arsenal, an army. I mean, it's, it's really impressive. But what is most um, interesting, I think, is that they have not displaced the landed aristocracy. They coexist with it. Mm-hmm. So that you can have hand to hand, like the same territory, the same space, like all that kind of the rural lands that extend from Altar to Sasare, all of that kind of rural area, which used to be um, the Honorotan lands, can support at the same time, you know, can be controlled by the sicarios and by cattle ranchers without much conflict between the two. So it's like the same space can be interpreted in terms of like, land property and, 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 and ranching, or it can be, you know, interpreted as a sort of, as a territory of a, of a militia, which I think it's, it's really interesting how it kind of supports the two economies rather than, you know, one displacing the other. I, I noticed in your book that you, um, I mean, this, this topic is so interesting. It's such an interesting dimension of your, of your research. You know, we get a, we kind of get a, a 30,000 foot, overview of what's happening, you know, from the United States and from newspapers, which is the way that, you know, so many people get um, access to what, you know, to any kind of, or any kind of purchase on what's happening. Um, You get a 30,000 foot view. um, But when you get down to it, you, you have this, you know, incredibly complex sort of interweaving as you're describing. And I remember in the book that you were talking about, and I know this, this ties directly into what you're saying, I think now, the you know that altar altar used to be divided into two kind of it had like two socioeconomic uh, mm-hmm. strata los de arriba y los de abajo and that was actually a physical geographic descriptor <laughs> as much as it was uh, you know a kind of a socioeconomic one which is los de arriba were closer to i guess the sort of main source of water and up a little bit actually physically higher do i have that right yeah that's that's i mean that was way before my time but yeah mm-hmm. and um Apart, well, I was going to ask. So, is that the, you know, and, and you describe them as kind of the 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 landed aristocracy of of Altar? Is that the same? The you know the ganaderos, the same um, families that you're talking about here? Some, some of them are. I mean, some of their some of them go back to the 1800s. Wow. Some of them, you know, they really do. Like they have, you know, these huge uh, states um, that go back to to the 1800s. But um, some of them are new, like uh, the Pesqueira, who are like, you know, you know this uh, very wealthy so family. Dynastic family, right. And yeah. they are the ones who like close the San Miguel Gate. Uh, who, who, by the way, Domingo Pesqueira owns land both in Mexico and in the U.S. I mean, he owns the town of Sasade in the U.S. Huh. Like, he bought the town, like, mm-hmm. including like the post office and everything. But um but he, uh, his family was actually, even though they have that last name that has like resonances in Sonora, they were, um, they kind of got rich in the 60s, um, this particular branch of, a, of the, of the Pescadas. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it's not like there is a lot of speculation about whether at some point it involved drugs or not, but, uh, but you know they they are kind of um, newer and, and newer riches than than the other ones. I see. Um, uh-huh. But yeah, I mean you you um, 
so I mean, some of these kind of distinctions are, are still in place and, and they go back very long, mm-hmm. these kind of social um, distinctions. I noticed that in the book too, that some, um, it seems like maybe the time that you got there in the 90s, uh, that and maybe even to the present, that some people kind of, there's this sort of identity of, uh, you know, pioneers or colonizers in a way, because I know that, you know, big parts of that, of that, uh, of the Sonoran Desert there were, you know, considered tierras baldias or kind of an empty, empty space that mm-hmm. various, go, you know, government programs were, were actually giving land away for people to colonize at one point, which of course those were Atam, mm-hmm. you know, Tahana Atam and Hiached Atam lands in that area. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just, an, it's really a pretty amazing arc of this history. Now that those, some of those same families that, you know, were part of that, you know, land dispossession process are now, you know, big landowners in the region and that they're kind of vying for, or whatever is happening there. They're sort of, you know, entretejidos with some of the, of the, you know, the, the drug trade that's happening. Yeah, no, I, um, I spoke about that in um, this talk I gave at the University of Arizona. Like I was looking very closely at the changes in, in patterns of land tenure in the strip, like just along the border, just south of the border from Sasabe to Sonoita. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it kind of uh, went over these kind of, um, so first the the dispossession of Otan lands in Pozo Verde and El Bajillo and San Francisco. And, and, you know, um, this, you know, it, it was a very, sorry, I mean, I can get into a lot of detail, but uh, there is different ways through which, uh, you know, through some of these colonization programs that the government had after the revolution, some of those lands were considered empty and they were open for claims to form ejidos or form ranches. And this is how some of these ranchers, um, uh, ranches along the border came into being. Mm-hmm. They kind of carved themselves out of the large 19th century states and they, you know, formed these ranches. But then you have, um, and by dispossessing, you know, the, the autumn, which were encroached and, you know, um, I mean, now have even lost possession of Paso Verde, who, which is actually an ejido that they own mm-hmm. um, still. I mean, I mean, formally, they are, they are the owners, but they no longer occupy it. But then you have this uh, second sort of uh, moment, like more recently, in which uh, drug traffickers began to acquire those ranchers at the border through different means, like debt or, you know, threats or, you know, or simply by buying them or by, you know, getting into sort of, I mean, deals with the owners and then uh, somehow something goes wrong with the deal and they end up like taking the ranch, etc. cetera. But um, so, you know, that is like a kind of second wave of dispossession now of the original dispossessor, so to speak. So it's just kind of like... Mm-hmm. These different, um, but something that I think also is very important is that in, in Sonora, you know, this kind of rancher pioneer identity ideology is so strong that it, it really hides and makes you know invisible, you know, covers all the all the violence against indigenous groups. I mean, mm-hmm. this is something that I think you know people in Arizona are perhaps even more conscious. Of than than the people in Sonora. I mean, it's not part of the. This is not something that we talk about. It's not some you know. It's not something that we recognize that, that we talk about that 
you know, it's, it's, uh, we haven't really come to terms with the fact that, you know, that, that this violence uh, exercise upon um, indigenous groups is, is, is very recent and continuous. And, um, you know, and it's the basis for the land claims that uh, all these people have in, in, in this region. Mm-hmm. I noticed too, yeah, uh, you know, apropos of this, what you're saying here, um, in your book, you talk about this this notion that, um, you know, Sonora is a land of equals, <laughs> and, mm-hmm. you know, that's a, that's a discourse that, that, uh, I've, I've definitely seen in my own research working in, you know, much farther South in Sonora in the Mayo Valley, mm-hmm. that seems like, you know, it's, it's sort of emergent over a long period of time, but especially in the, the post Mexican revolutionary years, the thirties to the fifties, there's this notion that, Sonora is a land of hard work and that mm-hmm. that hard work is something that, you know, is a kind of a great leveler that, that he or she who works hard, um, has an equal chance of getting ahead. Mm-hmm. And it's so interesting to me to see that there are so many, you know, kinds of parallels, um, in that discourse with the way that the, um, with the, you know, the ideologies that kind of authorize the settling of the West in the United States. Absolutely. I think Sonora, you know, has a lot in common with, with that. I mean, I think, you know, Sonora is, 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 is kind of the frontier, right? like, you know, it's, it's very similar to, to these kind of Western ideologies in, in the U.S., definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I think I remember you writing, you were citing um, the... The histor- the Sonoran historian Ignacio Almada, who was at the mm-hmm. Colegio de Sonora, yeah. his great bro- book uh, Breve Historia de Sonora kind of talks a little bit about that. Mm-hmm. You know, there's just so, there's a lot of uh, I don't know. It's it's so interesting to me that you can really see the ways that uh, the the historical process processes of of land in in Mexico are so kind of convergent what, with what we're seeing in this moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I think some of that frontier ideology it's it's actually partly what made drug trafficking such an sort of you know it was part of like drug trafficking culture or narco cultura uh, at least you know um, in the shape it took in in Sonora because I mean ultimately the choice of, you know back back in the day when when drug trafficking was actually a possibility right when when you could try to make it and actually make it in, in that way. Mm-hmm. What it offered was to, it was a kind of a grace period to a rural lifestyle that was dying, that was no longer sustainable. So that all the money coming from drug trafficking and smuggling was then invested back into ranches that were no longer you know, sustainable in economic terms. Uh, it was invested back into horses and cows and hats and boots and pickup trucks and something to kind of renew the illusion that lifestyle, that ranchero lifestyle could be, you know, perpetuated. Mm-hmm. And, and it allowed people also not to migrate. I mean, I, I can see it in, in you know, specific, like in, in, in my family, like my father, my uncles, they were, you know, they had to leave town. The village of that, you know, they had to leave it and go to Hermosillo to study uh, high school, and then maybe go to Mexico City to study at university, and never really come back. The only, you know, the option for those who stayed was either the ranch or smuggling, or both, a little bit of both. And and so what happened was that they ended up supporting these ranches through drug trafficking, 
and and it was like this ideology of the kind of the independent man that it's not going to you know be salaried or go be part of a bureaucracy working in an office you know but stayed in the land and 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 smuggling is you know allowed that to happen allowed that to you know allow them to stay there and kind of like prolong the existence of that ranchero uh, lifestyle mm-hmm. that autonomy I would imagine that, that autonomy surprised. yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, we didn't really talk much in the beginning um, about the the sort of setting the scene of this place. This is in one of the one of the driest parts of the Sonoran Desert. <laughs> you know, sustaining a sustaining a herd of cattle um, in that area is just not an easy thing to do, right? I mean, there are very few water sources. Can you kind of set you know set describe the the geography of the place a little bit for us? Yeah, so it's the the most arid part of the desert is actually a little bit uh, to the west, you know, San San Luis Rio Colorado, Peñasco, those sections that are actually, you know, like dunes and sand. So here you have, you know, it's certainly desert um, and you have, um, you know, like a sort of mesquite type of, um, you know, like um, cacti and, 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 you know, that type of um, environment and nature. But what happened was that, um, you know, many of the, 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 you know, like three or four of the presidents of Mexico after the revolution were from Sonora. And they invested a lot of money in the early 20s and 30s in um, infrastructure, you know, to turn Sonora into, to make the desert bloom, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So they created, they, like, they drilled wells and they made dams. And, like, they had this whole project, development project that, you know, sort of worked for a little bit, but then, you know, created um, the situation of high indebtedness. Like a lot of the ranches were indebted to the, to the Ban Rural and, and, um, you know, and, and, and the prices fell also. So my grandfather, for instance, he grew uh, cotton and for a while, like cotton was, you know, it was amazing. It was like the, the white gold and, um, and then the prices fell and, 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 you know, the ranch was indebted, um, and so, like, it was a whole sort of, you know, economic and environmental process of decay. Mm-hmm. And and right now, what you have is like the overgrazing for sure. I mean, you can see that so clearly when you look at um, the Mexican, you know, the Arizona Sonora um, border. Um, you know, when you see land on each side, you know, from a satellite view, I mean, it's so clear that the Sonora lands are are, are overgrazed. Um, like no one respects the limit of the like, number of cattle that you can have per hectare, and and you know water has also been overexploited. Now we have like mining, which is also a huge component of this kind of decay. I mean, you have huge mines now in Altar and Caborca, like gold mines that take uh, a lot of water, and also a kind of like reluctance among the people to choose crops and, and, and methods that are more suitable to desert, to a desert environment. So, you know, people insist on growing alfalfa and, you know, things like that that take a lot of, a lot of water. Mm-hmm. Things that bring, things that, that fetch a pretty high price on the market, things that exactly. generate income. Yeah, yeah, that makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah, one thing I've, I've noticed, so I, I lived in Sonora in the um, mid-1990s to the mm-hmm. early 2000s, basically. And so I, I you know, I got to see, uh, you know, I was in the south of the state, but I got to see that um, a similar process taking place where things felt relatively calm, but, you know, in the, especially in the latter part of that and, and now since 2007, it's a pretty changed landscape, um, mm-hmm. literally and figuratively. 
um, much more militarized police patrols, pretty constant, you know, all of that is happening. But one thing I've noticed and I can hear it in your description of the Altar uh, area too, is um, these sort of cycle inter- intersecting cycles of boom and bust, you know, like that are kind of happening um, simultaneously. And, and I, I mean, to some degree, I think that's always, that's been the case for a long time, you know, as you said, since the, especially since the, the generation of the, the Sonoran triumvirate, you know, the three presidents uh, mm-hmm. triumvirate. Um, but I really noticed it. I have noticed it more and more that you have these different activities co- coexisting. You know, it's it's mining and stepped up cattle ranching, and you know, at the same time, environmental deterioration. You know, and then uh, and then drug trafficking. Can you do you know what I'm talking about? It's it's uh, things feel very sped up. Yeah. No. I mean, and I think like I mean, trying to look at those processes and something that is interesting to me is that. There is, a, there is an early moment in which the frontier is open, so to speak, like in whatever activity you, you might be thinking about. So mm-hmm. there is a point in which like anyone could enter drug trafficking and, and try to make it. And like it was relatively open, you know, to kind of personal or individual entrepreneurship. The same thing happened with migration. Like there was an early moment in which a lot of women actually, um, you know, like got reached by, you know, kind of, being the first ones to the, to, to build hotels and restaurants and guest houses. And, but then uh, to be after that early boom moment, you see how it kind of, it closes and it actually, it becomes controlled by, by, a, you know, by a powerful group. And, and then, um, you know, sort of people move and, and, and try to find a different activity. So, um, I mean, you saw it with drug trafficking was like really clear, like when, um, you know, there's a moment in which, is no longer open for non-professionals, so to speak. Like you have to be a member of an organization that is highly hierarchical. And if you want to be part of it, you're going to receive a salary. You're no longer going to be like an, like a kind of individual entrepreneur. Like you're going to be, you know, like probably part of a bureaucracy, a highly militarized bureaucracy. The same thing happened with gold. I mean, I've been, um, recently working with gambusinos who are these um, kind of solitary men who go out in the, to the desert and they find gold by themselves. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like they, with using these very like kind of old methods of the 19th century, like, you know, they, they find little pieces of placer gold and, and enough to make a living. They're placer, and, placer miners, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and you could see, um, you could see that, I mean, also, it's sort of like there was a moment in 2012 when, like, you know, everyone wanted to be a gambusino and, like, you had all these people who had been sort of, like, excluded from drug trafficking who had some money. And so they started, like, to buy some, like, you know, more sophisticated machinery to do it, like, you know, like a small operation still, but, like, of clandestine mining. And, they, and you could see them all over the place, like doing these excavations. Um, and now it has gotten controlled by, by the mafia. So the mafia now it's in, you know, sort of like regulating access to the gold economy as well. Mm-hmm. And so you have all these kind of different processes of like sort of a boom in which like it's open and everybody kind of like rushes, like these rushes. It's really very kind of like yeah. a gold rush. And then, um, you know, there's a, a process of kind of, 
ossification or you know bureaucratization i don't know what to call it in which like you know an organization forms that kind of closes the access and controls it and and, and people move to some other activity and of course there is a very high cost in terms of the environment uh, for each one of these activities mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i mean charcoal is a huge one right now yeah right everybody's right. doing charcoal and, and this is you know like the char- mosquito charcoal which goes to arizona um, for barbecues and things like that and now it's like again like people who were in the gambusino uh, business of like clandestine gold now we're producing charcoal you know the do you know the work of uh of deluce deluce and guatari i do <laughs> yeah i was just thinking about how um you know they if the stuff you're describing here just seems so um <laughs> so well articulated in part by, by their, by their theories. And, and one of the things I keep thinking about is how, you know, you have this moment of the sort of open frontier, the nomad, the nomad frontier in a way, you know, that mm-hmm. could be a figurative and literal kind of thing. Um, and then there is this sort of like, uh, uh, what do they call it? Um, you know, the state comes in and starts to kind of vampire on, on all of that, you know what I mean? To kind of uh, impose, um, or figure out ways to take advantage of certain structures within all of that, you know? So it's like they, they call it the war machine. Yeah, you know? no, uh, I, I've read a little bit about it because there is this other anthropologist, I forgot his name, who um, uses the concept of the war machine to talk about child soldiers in, in Liberia. I forgot uh, his name. But yeah, I mean, I think the the, the kind of the peculiarity here is that it's not only the state, or at least it's a right. state, it's a state that is very, I mean, we need to develop our own concept of the state in Mexico to, you know, to understand what's going on, because, you know, it's not, a, I think it's a mistake to think of, of, of these local militias and the state as two separate forces. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that it, to a large extent, they co-govern Mexico, like that they know that, you know, certain things are under the control of the mafia and certain things are under the control of the state. Or rather, you could even think that, you know, having these mafias or militias control territories is, is, a, is a form of state control. Also, it's a form, you know, it's a kind of form of indirect rule. I think that's another term that, you know, sometimes I've, I've thought, you know, like, um, I mean, it's, it's from uh, histories of Africa, um, like this concept of the indirect rule was the way in which, like the you know um, England or the British Empire um, governed certain places by using you know by proxy, right, by using local powers to control places. Sometimes I think of organized crime as, as a form of indirect rule, you know, because it's not something that escapes the state or that is beyond the state, because there is so much so many transactions, you know, just in terms of like, like just to give you a more concrete example. So um, it is said that in order for the whole migrant extortion economy to, to exist in Alta, in other words, in order for the, for the local mafia to be able to charge every, every migrant a certain amount of money, they have a permit, they have an authorization from, from you know, the state police and, 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 and the state government. And, and they pay that, they, they pay those authorities so, you know, this is, of course, all like you could call it corruption, but if you decide to sort of look at it as what exactly it is, it's, it's a form of agreement or transaction between state, you know, state offices and, and these kind of so-called illegal or criminal militias. Mm-hmm. 
in a way between two two uh, interconnected but distinct bureaucracies or sets yeah. of bureaucracies, right? Does yeah. that seem right? Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I always gave the example that it was, it was it was so crazy how when when the when when the mafia started charging fees to migrants in Antar, they had to keep like so they were they were charging different fees to Central American migrants and to Mexican migrants. So they had to figure out whether the person was Central American or Mexican in order to know what how much to charge them, which means that they had to have like the kind of the knowledge or the skills of, uh, you know, an immigration authority. Yeah, right. So they had to be able to tell them apart and differentiate and like request like all these different forms of evidence and proof and and they have to keep track and like actually count them and, and, and keep, a, keep a record and a register of like everything that um, was going, everybody who was going through at that, which is a very kind of state-like activity, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, right. It's so I, I just get, I'm thinking as you're talking about how difficult it is to understand the workings of power in these in all of these relationships, because, you know, I was thinking about kind of Foucault and, and the kind of more capillary understanding of power and how, you know, over time, there's this sort of, uh, I don't know, stabilizations in the great swirl, you know, of power relations and forces. And sometimes certain things grow to be become dominant, and then they um, they impose an order, you know, mm-hmm. but it's not, it's not just that they impose an order because they are coming from, or they, an emer- they are in emergent order and they're also imposing an order at the s- same time. You know what I mean? There's like a kind of, a, kind of a really difficult tension to grapple with uh, intellectually <laughs> there. Yeah, no, I mean, I was trying to um, write about that uh, recently um, in, in terms of like, because so from 2010 to 2020, so the last 10 years. Um, so in 2010 is when the charging fees to migrants has started, uh, which is when, um, you know, this is when I think the, the process of cartelization or cartelization, uh, as I call it, began, which is this kind of like, you know, process of professionalization of the mafia and of the control, right? So like no longer amateur traffickers, like a professional monopoly um, sort of militia. This is when it started. And it, like in the last 10 years, it has had five leaders and the first four died very quickly. So it was, you know, they were, you know, they, they were killed in different circumstances. And the last one, the, the, the current one has been there for four years and five years. Um, but he also has kind of carried out these types of like, I don't know, processes of formalizing the structure beyond just the personality cult in a certain way. So it's like, I think now it has a much more formal structure so that even if he's not there, the structure would remain, would survive the occupants of the of the of the positions. You know, like it, it's, it's almost like it, in, in, in a very short time, it became a, it became this kind of more formalized bureaucracy, but it also became, you know, it developed an ideology, a very clear, like powerful ideology, which, you know, it's, it's promoted mostly through corridos and music, but it's an ideology that, you know, speaks of a lineage. So he always kind of talks about his dead son, his dead uh, brother and his compadres who came before him and who died so that he is now in power. So there's this kind of like, talking about the dead who came before and whose sacrifice basically was the foundation of the current 
state of affairs. So it's almost like a nationalism, like a yeah, tiny right, nationalism. Right. Mm-hmm. That makes that makes a lot of sense, right? So it's a it's a sort of a discourse of belonging that people are whatever it is they're you know they're they're moved into or they're where they're kind of interpolated i guess by yeah and it and it kind of um you know center on 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 the question of death as a gift in a certain way as a sacrifice Mm -hmm. right so it's dar la vida is the term that you would hear in some of these songs like you know my men would you know would give their lives for me or you know like this idea of 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 death as an offering Mm -hmm. um which um which I think is really interesting because when you see it in relationship to forced disappearance, right, which is the new kind of, that's another process that it's now, you know, taking place, which is a lot of these deaths are not longer just deaths, but but, but disappearances, Mm -hmm. which in a certain way um, takes away from the, from the sicario, from the soldier, from the, from these kids, it takes away the possibility of giving their life, you know, they're of dying publicly. I see. You know, of having a death that it's recognized publicly, and having a funeral, and having a, a song written about them. You know, so like it's like they don't longer, you know, own even their deaths. Like even their like everything has been taken away. Like the life is taken away, and the death is taken away because you don't have it a social death. You just disappear. And so it's it's to me it's kind of like the ultimate form of like extraction of labor labor exploitation. It's like that's it. Like you gave everything, and you no longer have a territory because you don't have a you don't have a, a burial site, you know, which is a form of territory in a certain way. It's like you know a place. Like this is something that the matters with Calderas always talk about, which is like I want my son to have at least a tumba, a place where I can go and and you know leave flowers. Mm-hmm. So to be grounded in the earth somewhere. So I think that, I don't know, like for this appearance in a way, it's, you know, together with all of this devastation of the landscape, it's just kind of another form of like erosion. It's like, it's just, you know, it's like the extraction of everything. Mm-hmm. You've been banished from mm-hmm. any earthly, earthly connection in, in some ways. Well, this is a, a, a good moment, I think, to pivot um, to a second second question I have for you. So you're uh, you've just won the uh, Jose Revueltas Literary Prize. Um, congratulations! <laughs> Thank you. Very uh, prestigious award. Uh, I guess it's 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 on the part of the uh, Instituto de uh, Bellas Artes y Letras. Is that do I have that right? Instituto Nacional de Bellas Artes. Yeah. De Bellas Artes. Uh huh. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, and uh, well deserved, I'm sure. I haven't read the so the the. I guess you have a compilation of essays. Yeah, no, the, this idea that I was just talking about of like forced disappearance as kind of uh, as a part of this larger form of extraction and devastation is something that I write about in, in, in one of those essays. Oh, that's right. Okay, so this is in the series of the compilation of essays is the uh, is called El Extravío de los Signos. Yeah. sobre el duelo y el porvenir. Yeah. Uh, I guess the first part's a little hard to translate into English. The loss of signs, three essays on grief and future and the future. How how do you have a better yeah, way I don't to translate know how that? I would translate it? I would say like I mean, <laughs> I, uh, I don't know how I would translate it, but I think the idea is that that signs become unintelligible or confusing, mm-hmm. and, and this is a reference to. I mean, so the argument that I'm making there is that so the Madres Buscadoras were looking for their uh, missing sons. They 
um, they look for traces in nature, like indexical traces, like little parts or pieces or little sort of sort of traces of movement in the land, footprints, like these types of like um, clues, right? Like physical traces. And, and so one of the arguments that I'm making is that, you know, that false disappearance makes it very difficult to kind of take those scatter traces and turn them into an image or a, or a narration or narrative. In other words, that it kind of, it, it, you know, that it produces an erosion of meaning also, not only of like, you know, the land, but also of meaning and, and forms of attributing meaning to things. So that, you know, it's very, it's, it's becoming harder to put together these signs in a, some kind of coherent uh, image or, or narrative. And, you know, this is kind of why the title. And, you know, one of the reasons is very practical is that um, the Madres Buscadoras, in order for, for them to be allowed to cross all these kind of internal borders and, and, and go and, and look, you know, for their, for their sons, they have to say explicitly and publicly that they are not looking for justice, that they don't want to know what happened, mm-hmm. that they just want to know where they are. So they can have to renounce to a kind of narrative of what happened. Like, you know, they cannot attribute blame to anyone. They don't want to, like, you know, they, they, they have to just say, all I want to do is find them and bury them. And otherwise um, they're risking their lives. Otherwise, they'll be risking their lives or they'll be kind of like, you know, it would be much more difficult for them to get anonymous information, which is, yeah. which is one of their main sources, right? It's like they receive anonymous information of where could someone be, but they don't ask any further question. So the people who are providing this anonymous uh, information, I'm sure they could be a variety of, of different people, but I guess ostensibly some of them might be people who were involved Certainly, the yeah. Disappearance? Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, there is all sorts of sources, but yeah, I mean, there is, they receive, yeah, I mean, people who were involved, who, who shared about it, mm-hmm. um, even people from within the police, mm-hmm. who sometimes are also related to the disappearances, right? That's the tricky thing is that, I mean, sometimes they feel more threatened by state forces than by, you know, criminal militias. So you have in the in the disappearance you have you know an assassination and and then the disappearance of the of the burying of the body or or I guess a variety of different things right sometimes I mean dismemberment right sometimes or t- can you describe what when when people find when when the madres buscadoras find someone what's what are the circumstances or the conditions I mean, I've seen very um, a variety of cases. I mean, sometimes they find them you know very recent. You know, people who have very recently disappeared, been killed and disappeared, and that are more or less exposed somewhere. Uh, you know, recently they have been finding uh, a lot of those, you know, corpses that are abandoned, uh, in, but in, in kind of like um, empty lots or areas, and, and, and they just receive a call and they go. And, and, and because they have such a following on Facebook, that they can very easily identify the person, which the government cannot do as quickly. So they, you know, they um, mm-hmm. they are much more effective at identifying these uh, corpses. But then they also found, I mean, one of the one of the most impressive findings of the Madres Buscadores was in Puerto Peñasco, in Rocky Point, near the tourist area. 
um, that's it's, it's a it's a very sand there. Like the, the, the ground is very easy to dig, and um, and and they found an entire mass grave. I mean, it was like fifty-two corpses that they that they dug out from there, and it was a combination. I mean, there were women that were very old corpses. I mean, that maybe ten years, some very recent ones. I mean, all sorts of yeah findings, and then. Now also you have one that I write about in my essay. Um, they have been finding in the in the same pits that are used for making the charcoal. So like if you go to the ranches there in the area, you'll see in, um, this pit, this kind of like these holes that they dig in the whole thing. It's like a square pit that it's like maybe like, I don't know, like a meter by three meters and then a little bit um, deep. And in those where they burn the charcoal, where they make the charcoal, some of those have been turned into crematories, like into like they burn corpses there. And and there is very difficult to to find any kind of trace or part that can be used for genetic testing. So um, you know, like, and this is you know this has been happening all over Mexico, but it's you know it's it just further complicates things because it's it's really really hard to identify mm-hmm. right so it it's like a almost a total disappearance mm-hmm. exactly yeah well wow. it is it's just incredibly shocking and hard to hear all of this i just can't imagine i have no yeah. context for understanding what um what the madres are going through i mean it's yeah no certainly it's it's i mean i'm i'm amazed at their their strength I mean, just the fact that like they don't stop mm-hmm. they you know like it's just constantly looking for like, like i mean they just you know like they they are that's all they do like they are devoted entirely to 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 trying to to find them mm-hmm. I, I mean i think there is there is something you know really important here which is that i find it hard to to talk about violence in mexico in the United States and with the American audience, mm-hmm. I feel like the the kind of the U.S. political spectrum is organized in a way that it kind of doesn't allow you to talk about sort of you know how how terrible the situation is in Mexico because it's it's kind of like you have to take parts and either a kind of conservative side which you know like if you talk about how you know how violent mexico is you might be feeding these kind of racist stereotypes and anti-immigration policies Mm -hmm. but then if you don't want to you know do that then you kind of have to pretend that nothing happens nothing wrong happens in mexico right like it's kind of like i find it very difficult to to kind of reject border enforcement and anti-immigration policies and at the same time you know ask the American audience to kind of sort of see and acknowledge the fact that we do have a, a, a very terrible situation in Mexico, mm-hmm. you know, largely caused by, um, you know, by, by a market, you know, by a drug economy that, you know, of course the U S is part of. Right. 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 I think that's something that, right. That is, that is so interesting what you're saying here. Um, I can, I've had that experience myself of talking to people including people I know pretty well who live in Mexico, who it's difficult to talk to this about. I mean, obviously it's just a hard topic period. I don't want to, you know, to, to be too critical there, but, um, but I think that in the U S you know, where the border is just such a subject of, um, 
a politics of fear that it's really hard to touch it. And to, and, and my extension now, Mexico with the drug wars. And then, and then, you know, just like the, somehow that that connection between um, the demand for cheap mm-hmm. labor, for inexpensive narcotics, mm-hmm. um, you know, that, that the demand, that, that connection, that the demand is fueling so much of this, um, somehow it just gets lost in that, in that conversation. I mean, yeah. I know you're saying, what you're saying is, is, is even bigger than all of that. So, but I really appreciate you mentioning that. I think it's really important. I mean, I think sometimes I find that, uh, you know, uh, sort of um, politically oriented people in the U.S. Uh, are more aware of what's happening in, you know, in Palestine than in Mexico. Yeah, like, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the the our friend um, uh, who's the who's a professor at UNAM. Um, sometimes when I when I meet with her, I you know I talk about. I mean, I try to read a little bit of from Mexican newspapers and I, you know, a little bit of, from the U.S. side as well on Mexico. But the coverage of Mexico in U.S. papers mm-hmm. is so sensationalized, you know. And so sometimes I'll tell her something about something that I've read, and, you know, and she's like, oh, my God, it's just ridiculous. <laughs> you know, how blown out of proportion all of that is. It's just it's so common. Yeah. And it, I mean, and it's, you know, like this kind of stereotypical notions like i don't know like you know my partner and i always laugh at the fact that you know whenever you're talking about drug trafficking with you know with with americans is that they just talk about the cartel like this one like yeah the cartel came and the cartel did that and the cartel did and it's kind of like which cartel like what group are you talking about like what is this thing that you are like the cartel like this kind of right I don't know. It's it's just like a shortcut that doesn't really say much. I really like how you describe it as a process of of cartelization, as opposed to just a, a kind of a game board or a chessboard with with all of these groups that just exist mm-hmm. um, and that that have these you know whatever these these plazas, this you know this kind of the corridors and the plazas and you know that kind of that geography of of, of drug cartels. I mean, if you you know, you, I'm sure you've done this. You Google um, drug war in Mexico, and uh, invariably you're going to get like these maps. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that pop up, you know, and those maps, like most maps, you know, give you a sense of, um, uh, you know, kind of durability and <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, or stability. Yeah, right, exactly, yeah. right. And it's just so shifting. Mm-hmm. And the thing is that, you know, like those maps are used in the Congress. They, I mean, they are the basis for, you know, for, for policy and for foreign policy, you know, and they get kind of confirmed somehow, like, you know, like, so these representations somehow become like authorized and, 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 and they, you know, they become the basis for, for, for important decisions. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Exactly. Right. They, uh, they kind of, you know, maps make realities mm-hmm. just as much as they as they reflect them. I do want to ask you. So, you've won the Jose Revueltas Literary Prize uh, just a few days ago. You're notified of that, and uh, I was thinking about Jose Revueltas, and I, I noticed that um, in your comments when you accepted the reward the award um, just a few days ago that you have a kind of a connection with the. Uh, the Mexican activist, now deceased uh, activist and, and political philosopher, Jose Revueltas, who's the namesake of the prize. Um, I, and, mm-hmm. Oh, sorry. If I could just finish that up. And I was thinking, you know, so he ended up in prison. Um, he was part of the, ended up to be part of a pretty important part of the student uh, movement in, ni- in the 1960s. 
And then, you know, that, that the, the massacre, the student massacre um, will be 52 years old on October 2nd, I believe. And so I was just, I was just thinking a little bit about all of that. Maybe you could talk about your, your, is that true that you, did I read that right? That you have this connection or maybe I had yeah, right? so, well, through, through my dad. Rowentas died a few years before I was born, but uh, he was very close with my dad. And uh, I mean, he was much older than my dad, but uh, he, my dad was part of the, of the student movement in, in Hermosillo and in Mexico city. And like, they, used to go visit him in jail and 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 I think they connected because Roberto was from Durango, which is, you know, it's a northern state. And my dad was from Sonora. And so they had like a kind of, you know, a similar sort of nostalgia for this uh rural desert lands and, you know, they share a lot uh mm-hmm. in that in that respect. And and I just growing up my my dad would tell me stories uh, of him and like all sorts of anecdotes. And um and I, I, you know, just kind of more, you know, more broadly, I just, I, I'm convinced that it, it is really important to recover the figure and the legacy of Revueltas because I think it was because of his um, communist um, conviction that he has been kind of excluded a little bit from the literary and cultural canon in Mexico. Mm-hmm. And, and he's like really a, a major writer, an amazing, amazing writer. Like, I don't, you know, I would say, like, El Luto Humano by Revueltas, it's kind of the size of Pedro Paramo by Juan Cruz. Mm-hmm. And Pedro Paramo became, like, the Mexican novel. But, you know, El Luto Humano is, is just amazing. And I think, you know, it also mattered a lot to me that the prize was named after him because, you know, some of the topics that I was trying to address, you know, which is this kind of relationship between mourning and the possibility to think the future to to imagine or to create a future is something that you know he he was kind of concerned um, about you know like I think in the Luto Mano he writes about you know just the, the the amount of death that the Mexican Revolution caused like you know like just all this kind of devastation and death and 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 his you know concern was like how do we turn all of that into like an actual foundation of something how do you turn that into a historical force like you know is it possible you know is, is there a way to redeem so to speak all of that violence and turn it into you know into something and you know into some kind of way towards the future some kind of, of real transformation yeah real transformation or you know or, or you know simply just i mean like when it comes to the Madres Buscalonas, I think it's, it's just like, you know, we, we need to really see that violence, you know, because even in Mexico, I think, like, we don't, like, you know, all of these deaths are very often, like, disregarded, or they aren't really more, they aren't really more publicly, they are more privately, but not publicly, there isn't like a, you know, there's only a few cases, like the Ayotzinapa, or the 72 from San Fernando, who has caused this kind of, like, you know, public mourning, mm-hmm. like, but like the, the thousands that are killed every day, they're just kind of like discarded as criminals. Mm-hmm. They are not mourned. Mm-hmm. So I think that's kind of like a huge part of what the Manes Buscadores are doing is, is, is kind of like giving them the status of, of mournable, you know, not disposable. Like, you know, we need to mourn them. And on the basis of that, we can think of a, of a future out of, of this kind of like, 
sort of repetition of violence doesn't take anywhere. Mm-hmm. Wow, Natalia. Well, I really, uh, I really salute you and, and thank you for all this incredible work you're doing. I mean, you're, you know, your writing and your activism and, you know, your concern for what's happening and, and trying to, um, to inform other people while at the same time, you know, using your connections as a, you know, as a scholar, your connections between different worlds to, uh, to aid people in their, in their quest, you know, to, to grieve and to, to kind of create some understanding around what's happening. I, I just, you know, I think it's really important. So, uh, you know, thank you so much. And thank you for this, for this conversation. I've really, uh, it's been fascinating. I really, really enjoyed it. Well, thank you for uh, taking the time to read my book and, you know, have such great questions. Oh, you're quite welcome. This episode of the JSW Radio Hour is produced by Jeff Bannister and edited by Carlos Quintero. 